Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. As a church, we are studying our way through the Gospel of Mark. And we need to remember that as Mark has been writing this book, he's been writing from the city of Rome, and he's writing to Gentiles who are in the city of Rome. His primary audience that he is writing to is actually a Gentile people, not Jewish people. So it's very important for Mark to communicate to these Gentiles uh, the importance of Jesus' plan. Because Jesus, if you notice, Jesus is Jewish in nature. The action in this book takes place in Jewish land among Jewish people. But Jesus' mission is not just for Jewish people, it is for all people. So while Jesus' mission is for Jews and Gentiles, if you were to talk to the average Jewish person on the street in the time of Jesus, you would not find a lot of love that the Jewish people had for Gentiles who were different from themselves. The Jews actually viewed themselves as much better than the Gentiles. Jews typically had sort of a chip on their shoulder when they thought of Gentiles that they were better and superior to them. The Jews were isolated themselves from the Gentiles, and the Jews had even become hostile towards the Gentiles. But that is not the attitude actually God wanted from his people to the lost world around them. In fact, the Old Testament talked consistently about the Jews being a light to the Gentile world. And about the mission of his people was to tell the Gentiles about God's love and plan. We can read about this in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 through 6, where it says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So God's plan was for his people to have hearts of compassion to all people, for his people to lead other people to the truth, for his people to be a light to the Gentiles. But that is not usually what happened. Do you guys remember the story of Jonah? What was Jonah like? When he was told to go to Nineveh and to tell them to repent, or they had 40 days to repent, or God would bring judgment, what did Jonah do? He actually went in the opposite direction. He went away from Nineveh because he wanted to see the Gentiles burn. Now, the attitude that Jonah displayed toward the Gentiles in his day is very similar to the attitude that the Jewish people in Jesus' day displayed towards Gentiles. Not a lot of love and compassion for them. But God's plan has always been to extend his mercy and forgiveness to all people, and that God's Jewish people were not to be the enemy of people, but to be the light for them. In fact, if you go to Psalm 87, Psalm 87 says this, that God planned to extend his, plans to extend his salvation to the people of Egypt 
People who are originally enemies of God's people would one day have salvation extended to them. Also, the people of Babylon, it says in Psalm 87, will have salvation extended to them. And the people of Tyre. Now you may wonder, Tyre, who are these people? Are they too enemies of God's people? We'll find out the answer to that this morning. Now, some of you may internally object a little bit. Okay, so God's people were to be the light to the world. (laughs) But if that's true, then when you look at Jesus, why does it seem like Jesus often has limited his people to the Jewish people and the Jewish people alone? God's plan was for all people. Why does Jesus limit it? For instance, look in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why does Jesus limit his mission to the Jewish people? when God's plan is for all people. I'll tell you the answer to that. There's actually an order and a priority to the way God's plan of salvation would work. God's plan was to offer salvation to the Jewish people first and then to offer salvation to the Gentiles second. If you go to the book of Romans, actually the whole book of Romans has this as a mega theme woven through it. And this is the issue of Romans chapter 9 through 11. This is one of the relationship and the salvation for the Jews. And in the beginning of the book, when Paul gives the theme verse for the book of Romans, this is what he says in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. And this explains a lot, because when Paul would do his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, you know he would pull into a town, and where did he always go first? The Jewish synagogue. And there he would present the gospel. But when he was rejected at the synagogue, then where did he go? Then he went to the Gentiles in the city. He followed that order and priority. Now, we need to know this order and priority as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark, because we're going to see this order and priority of the Gospel being presented to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles lived out in the text that we're studying this morning. So let's go ahead, and I'm going to um, just begin on your outlines around page two. We're going to pick up the text in Romans, or excuse me, Mark chapter seven, verse 24. And it is a small background verse. So we're going to give you the background. It begins like this. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. So it begins by saying that Jesus... (laughs) arose and went away from there. And if you're like any normal person, you're going to say, well, where does he arise from and where is he, he going from? Now, this picks us up where we last left off in our study of the Gospel of Mark about two weeks ago. 
We had seen that Jesus had landed with his disciples at the village of Gennesaret, just south of Capernaum, and he had worked his way back to Capernaum, which is on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was sort of his base of operations in that area, and he was most likely staying in the house of Peter and Andrew, which was the house where he often stayed when he was in that city. For the last few weeks, we've seen that Jesus has been engaged in a debate with the local Pharisees and a variety of scribes that have come in from Jerusalem. Those scribes had come in specifically to discredit him. And we had seen in the last few weeks, things were really heating up in the area of Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee for Jesus. It was getting pretty... um, Pretty exciting for him, and a lot of busyness for him. We had seen that Jesus had fed the 5,000, which we learned is actually more like 20,000 people he had fed. And Jesus' popularity became, rose, it was like he was like insanely popular after he fed all that people. So people everywhere were trying to catch up with Jesus, be with Jesus, and be healed with Jesus. Back in Mark chapter 2, we had already seen that the local Pharisees had decided that they wanted Jesus dead. But now with Jesus' incredibly high popularity at this point, they redoubled their effort to try and get rid of Jesus. They were very threatened by his power, which is why they had brought the scribes in from the city of Jerusalem to try and discredit him. So they were trying to get Jesus in debates with these big theological gurus. So the picture is, at this time, Jesus is getting absolutely no rest in the area of Galilee. The people constantly want to be with him because he fed the 5,000. The leaders are constantly in, in turmoil with him, trying to discredit and to undermine him. And so here as we pick up after the last debate that Jesus had with these scribes, it says, and he rose up from there, he got up and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but it actually is a major big deal. It's a serious road trip. He completely left that area because of the incredible popularity and the turmoil he was experiencing when he was there. Jeremy, could you go ahead and put that map up there? If you look on the, the bottom of the orange line, that'll show you where Capernaum is, where he was in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. When it says he went to Tyre and Sidon, that is, Tyre is 35 miles northwest on the ocean there, and Sidon is another 20 miles above that. These cities are deep into Gentile territory. It is completely away from Jewish territory. They are wealthy cities. They are busy cities. And they are hardcore pagan cities. But if you're Jesus, trying to get a break from the Jewish leadership who is always trying to undermine you and debate you, trying to get a little break from the people who are constantly trying to make demands of you, It's probably a good idea to get away to Tyre and Sidon where Jewish people typically will not go. We need to remember that at this point, Jesus has less than a year until he is crucified. 
And he is trying to take, and especially a lot of time, to build into his disciples because they're the ones that are going to carry on the mission. And Jesus is not having much time to build anything into his disciples because they're the, the extreme demands of the crowds and the opposition of the Pharisees and Jewish leadership. Let me tell you some more about these cities of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Tyre, in particular, was a, known as a wealthy city. It was also known, as I said, a pagan city. It was the hometown of Jezebel from the Old Testament. Any of you remember Jezebel? She does not have a good reputation. Uh, she became queen for King Ahab in the northern kingdom. She was the daughter of the king of Tyre. She is the one who introduced Baal worship into the northern kingdom. She single-handedly went out of her way to kill all of the prophets she possibly could in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel fell into apostasy in large part because of this woman who came from the city of Tyre. Though there are some narratives such as Elijah and the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament where you see a resurgence and ultimately God's people do turn back for a brief periods of time to him, in the long haul, they stay committed to Baal, and this is the reason that the northern kingdom went into exile into Assyria in 722 BC, never to return. And historically, the Jews looked back to Jezebel, who was the one who introduced Baal worship into the northern kingdom. Jezebel, who came from the city of Tyre. That's the historical reference for this city. That's why the Jews really don't like this city. As recently as 200 years before this, during the intertestamental period when there was a Maccabean revolt, the cities of Tyre and Sidon actually fought against the Jews during the intertestamental period in the Maccabean revolt. So these cities uh, were not known for just birthing the idea of Baal worship, but they were continually deeply involved in Baal worship. Baal, incidentally, is a fertility god. So you can sort of think of what worship might be like. The other god that they were deeply involved in worship to was the god Ashtarte, which is the goddess of beauty. So you have the fertility god and the goddess of beauty are your, like your two main deities running around these cities. So you can think what life might be like in these places. In that day, Tyre and Sidon were known as probably the most extreme forms of paganism that the average Jew would ever encounter. The idea that Jesus, a well-respected rabbi, would even go there was unheard of because most of the, joy, the Jews avoided these cities. But as I said earlier, if you're Jesus and you're trying to get some time to be with your disciples, to finally train your disciples because you have only months left until you were crucified, what a better place to go. Because the Jews won't follow you there. The, G Jew the Jewish leadership won't bug you there. Most of us don't realize, just because of the lack of information in our Bibles, the amount of time that Jesus spent on this trip. This trip is about 120 to 150 miles that Jesus takes. It took weeks. 
It possibly took months. But Jesus, as you'll see, doesn't really do anything in the way of teaching or anything in the way of miracles on this trip except the one that we're going to study this morning. Because his purpose is not to be a light to the Gentiles at this time. His purpose is actually to focus on training his disciples. This is why when you go to Mark chapter 731, which is actually the verse we'll begin with next week, it sort of summarizes this trip. And maybe, Jeremy, you want to throw that uh, previous slide back up there. And he returned from the region of Tyre and went up through Sidon, which we saw was 20 miles to the north, to the Sea of Galilee, and then into the region of the Decapolis, the Decapolis is actually the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It is the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Decapolis because it's actually just two Greek words. The Greek word deca, which is ten. The Greek word polis, which means city. It's the area of ten Greek or Gentile cities. So Jesus is taking a lot of time to go through the Gentile area in this section. As I said, it took weeks or months, but he does almost no teaching and almost no miracles save what we're about to study this morning. The idea that he's trying to focus on his disciples explains why in the text, why it says when he went there, he did not want anyone to know that he was there. He's not trying to draw a crowd. He's trying to focus on his disciples. In addition, it explains to us why it says he went into a house. Some of you will remember that I told you earlier in this gospel, whenever it says that Jesus went into a house, that means that he is going to do some specific teaching or training for his disciples. It's consistent all the way through this gospel. So he doesn't want anyone else to know where he's gone. He's gone into a house because he's going to focus on training his disciples with not much time left before he is crucified. The question may come to your mind. Jesus is now 35 to 50 miles away from Capernaum. He's deep into the heart of pagan territory, trying to make sure that no one knows where he is. Do you think anyone knew about him in Tyre and Sidon? Do you think he was actually famous in these pagan cities too? There's a little verse that we read earlier in Mark chapter 3, which told us about Jesus' fame and how wide it had spread. It was Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Now let me just remind you where these, these places are. First, the crowd came from Galilee, which was the area that Jesus was around the Sea of Galilee. And then from Judea, which is just south of that, just above Jerusalem. Jerusalem is more further south yet. Idumea is actually out of Jewish territory into Edomite territory in the deep south. So Jesus was incredibly famous. Beyond the Jordan is far to the east, and then to the north from Tyre and Sidon. So yes, Jesus was known in this territory, even though it was a hardcore pagan 
city. As we continue in the text, the next thing we find ourselves introduced to is a woman. A woman who's heard about Jesus. He's heard, she's heard what he has done. And that's why she's so interested in him. Let's look at the woman. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. She came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Incidentally, this story that we're reading about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, it's also told one other place in a parallel account. It's told in Matthew chapter 15. And I'd like to just bring in a little bit more information that Matthew chapter 15 tells us about this woman and this interaction to give us a little more complete picture of her. Matthew 15 says this about her. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out. Let's think about this lady and who she is and the background that she comes from. First of all, Matthew says she is a Canaanite woman. If you know your Bible, uh, that's not a good sign. Canaanites were actually the sworn enemy of God's people in the Old Testament. God's people had originally been told to exterminate the Canaanites as a people group because of their great sin. Obviously, his people had not done a good job of exterminating them. Otherwise, she wouldn't be here in this part of the text. But the Canaanites, historically, were constantly a thorn in Israel's side. In addition, she was a Syrophoenician. That simply means that General Ptolemy, the Roman general, had actually combined Syria and Phoenicia at that point, and that's why she was called Syrophoenician. She was Roman by background, Gentile by background. So not only did she worship the Canaanite gods, probably, but she also worshiped the Roman gods. In addition, it's noteworthy to say that she was a woman, and that's not a good thing in the ancient world. Now, Jesus, as you look at his ministry, he gave great and high value to women. But culturally, in the ancient world, women were typically not given much value. There's a famous Jewish prayer that was prayed in that day that uh, Jewish men would pray. It went something like this. God, I thank you for not making me a woman and for not making me a Gentile. Now, I'm not saying you should pray that prayer, obviously. But it just goes to show you the attitude that many men had towards women in that day. So my point to make is look at this woman's background. It is one of the worst backgrounds you're going to get. Number one, she is a woman. Number two, she is a Canaanite the arch enemy of God's people. She, number three, she is a Syrophoenician, so she's following the Roman gods. And number four, she lives in the city of Tyre, which is one of the most hardcore pagan cities of the day. You could not get like much farther from God when it comes to her background. But here is what's amazing about this particular story. Why her background is terrible the attitude of her heart is wonderful. It says that she approaches Jesus, and what does she do? She fell at his 
feet, begging for mercy. The last time in this gospel, we, we saw somebody falling at the feet of Jesus, displaying that kind of humility, was Jairus. Remember Jairus? He was the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. And why did Jairus do that? Because his daughter was sick. Now here we have somebody who is the exact opposite of Jairus. Jairus was the ultimate, um, so to speak, in spiritual authority. Here is the opposite, a completely pagan woman who is also falling on her feet in front of Jesus because her daughter is not sick, but her daughter is demon-possessed. I want you to picture what this daughter must have been like. In that day and age, women were typically married around the age of 12 or 13. So she would be younger than age 12 or 13. Probably around the ages of 8 to 10. One of the things that we've learned from this gospel and seen in our studies is that when demons manifest themselves in people because they were demon-possessed, the way they manifest themselves usually is by mutilation and self-harm. Remember we saw that with the Gadarene demoniac? What did he do? He would cut himself with stones. So the picture is we have a lady whose little daughter, for some reason, is demon-possessed. When this demon manifests itself, it most likely causes her to harm herself or destroy herself. And this mother is completely heartbroken, probably feels she can't even leave the house safely because she cannot leave her daughter alone. She fears for her daughter's very life. No doubt she has tried all the deities that are in her town. She's tried going to the Canaanite deities asking for help to no avail. She's gone to the Roman deities from her Syrophoenician background, had absolutely no help, and things have continued and gotten probably worse. But she's heard of this man named Jesus. This man named Jesus, who is in a, the Jewish region, he doesn't just cast out one demon, but he casts out hundreds of demons with just saying a word. And in her mind, you can see what she is saying. Now, I don't know who Jesus is, but I know he must be the one true God because he's the only one who can cast out demons and he's the only one who could save my daughter. And so she comes to him and it says in Mark 7, 26, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. I mentioned to you that this account is also told in Matthew. Let me show you what it says in Matthew about her begging. It says, And she was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Mark says that she is on her knees and she is begging, begging Jesus for mercy. Matthew says that she is crying on her knees to Jesus for mercy. 
The picture is that she is on her face and the tears are just running down her face. Jesus, you, you are the one who can save my daughter. All of my hope, all of my prayers are going to you. She's not going to the other gods anymore. She's going to him. And interestingly, the tense in the Greek is very vivid. It's a continual tense. She is not just begging once and crying once. She is continually begging, continually crying again and again, asking for him to have mercy and to cast the demon out of her daughter. One of the reasons I wanted to add Matthew's account into here is because Matthew gives a very interesting piece of um, information. She says to Jesus these things. She says, she calls him, O Lord, son of David. Now remember, she is a hardcore pagan woman from a pagan background, but yet she calls Jesus the very son of David. Does that trigger something in your mind? That's the title of the Messiah. We're going to see that title used again, but it goes in the triumphal entry right before Jesus is crucified. She may be a pagan, but she has put the pieces together about who Jesus seems to be. That he seems to be the Messiah. Her gods can't cast out any demons, but he can cast out demons. I'm putting all my chips, all of my hope on you, Jesus. Please, I beg you, I cry to you, save my little girl. Now Matthew tells us there is an unexpected response on the part of Jesus and his disciples. Let me show you what it says. And he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. I want to start with the disciples' response, because to me it is so shocking. Picture this woman on her knees with the tears flowing down her face, begging Jesus. And what do the disciples do? They're about as compassionate as a brick. Send her away. Remember I told you earlier the Jews don't have much love for the Gentiles? They think of themselves as better than the Gentiles. The disciples look at her and her background, this pagan, Syrophoenician, Canaanite woman, say, get rid of her, Jesus. Don't even pay attention to her. Don't listen to her. In fact, if she keeps crying out like this, she's going to blow our cover and we're not going to have our alone time together. How selfish can you be? I told you, the disciples need a lot of work. That's why Jesus is spending time with them. But Jesus also seems to ignore her. But why is he ignoring her? Is Jesus being as compassionless as his disciples are? Does Jesus not care about this desperate Canaanite woman? That wouldn't make sense. Everything else we've seen about Jesus in this gospel is Jesus always responds with compassion to people. 
Why did he not immediately respond to her? I'll tell you what I think, why he ignored her. The longer he ignored her, the more desperately she cried, the more vocal she was. And what he wants his disciples to do, he wants his disciples to see what true saving faith looks like because they're seeing it in her life. Remember, this whole mission ends up being really about this section about training his disciples. In this gospel, there's very few times in the gospel of Mark where we see genuine, healthy faith. But this woman, this pagan woman, seems to have it. She calls him the son of David, recognizes him as the Messiah. She is humble. She is on her knees. She is desperate. She has put all of her hope in Jesus to save her daughter and no one else. Finally, after she's cried for a while and Jesus has ignored her for a while, Jesus responds to her. And he says this. We're still in the Gospel of Matthew for now. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. In other words, Jesus said, I wasn't sent to the Gentiles. I was sent to the Jewish people. Remember we learned this at the very beginning? That there was a priority. There was an order. The Jewish people were to have salvation offered to them first. Then later on, and you have the Pentecost, and you have the mission going out to the Gentiles. In other words, it's not time for salvation and grace to be offered to you. But I love her response. She simply falls at the feet of Jesus, and she rests her case with these words. Lord, help me. Have you ever been there? desperation, your world is falling apart, your life is in pieces, you've been on your knees, you're in prayer, and the only thing left you can say is, Lord, help me. You've been there. That's exactly where this woman is. The end of her rope, the end of her hope, she's cast all of her hope on Jesus. Please help. Now let's go back to the Gospel of Mark and finish the story. Jesus gives her a parable. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What Jesus is saying, he's giving a small parable so she could understand what is going on here. The idea is when you made dinner, like um, no doubt this woman would make dinner, and she has children, because obviously we're trying to have a demon cast out of her daughter. When you make dinner, you feed the kids first. Then you feed the dogs. You feed the dogs the leftovers. You don't do it the other way around. You don't feed your dogs first and then feed your kids the leftovers, it just wouldn't make sense. That's the wrong order. It's the wrong priority. 
Now, I'm just going to mention this to you. Some people get a little bit bent out of shape at this one. I don't necessarily see the problem with this, but I'll throw this out because some people do. I say, how could Jesus do this? Jesus just called this woman a dog. How offensive. Well, let me give you some answers to that one. First of all, Jesus didn't directly call this woman a dog. Jesus is giving them, her a parable. It's a parable. Don't freak out on this. Incidentally, dogs were not in the ancient world the way we would consider them today. We often say dogs are a man's best friend, but that's not the way the Jews viewed dogs. The Jews did not like dogs, just so you know. Uh, dogs were typically scavengers in the ancient world. Have you ever seen that wild animal uh, kingdom thing on YouTube, Discovery Channel, which has the wild dogs in Africa and they're feared? That's typically what dogs were thought of in the ancient world. However, while the Jews didn't like dogs, Gentiles did like dogs. They didn't like big dogs, like husky kind of deals. They only liked small dogs, house pet dogs. Now, it's interesting here because in Greek, there is two words that are used for dogs. One is the typical word for dogs, and the other is a, a, the word that means a little dog. And that is actually the word used here. It's talking about a pet dog. Just as you know, we have a pet dog. We have one of those little dogs in our house. Actually, it's my son's. He, he lives home right now, and so he brought her home. Her name's Willa. She's a miniature dachshund. Uh, I checked her out. She's officially seven inches high at the shoulder, about as small as you get. This is the kind of dog that is being talked about. And here we have a Gentile woman who is in a pagan Gentile city where they would have what kind of dogs if they had a pet? Little tiny dogs. So this is a parable that she can relate with. No doubt she has children and probably she has a few little dogs. By the way, in the ancient world, there's no such thing as dog food. What do the dogs eat? the leftovers of your meal. Which is why she says, he says it's the wrong order to like feed the dogs first. You would always feed the children first. And so Jesus' point is that it is not time for mercy and grace to be extended to you and to the Gentile world. But then she says this. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table, eat the children's crumbs. Rather than being offended, she puts herself into the parable. She accepts the place of the dog, the one who would get the leftovers of the meal, because she's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. But then she says this, but Jesus, isn't it true that even while the children are eating, the dogs are under the table picking up whatever crumbs they drop. Jesus, I'm begging you. You are the son of David. You are my only hope. You are my only prayer to heal my daughter. I know who you are. And I want mercy from you. And I believe that you are so good 
that even though it is not time for me and the Gentiles to receive mercy, you will still let a few crumbs of mercy drop my way. What an incredible attitude for this woman. What incredible godly faith. Now I want to put this in here. Let's contrast her with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jews. They have all the right background, but they have the completely wrong attitude when it comes to Jesus. She has all the wrong background, but she has the completely right attitude when it comes to Jesus. Understanding who he is, begging for his mercy and grace, and confident that he will give it. And Jesus said this to her. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Why did Jesus extend grace and mercy to this lady? She came from the wrong background. She was a woman, a Canaanite, a Syrophoenician from the city of Tyre. But she had exactly the right heart. Humble, looking for God's mercy. Not going anyplace else besides him. Seeing him as the son of David and confident in his faith and goodness she didn't deserve. And that's why Matthew sums it up this way. Then God said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Because she had great faith in Jesus, she received great mercy from Jesus. Isn't that true? Jesus is so good. Nothing has changed. Folks, when we place great faith in Jesus Christ and we come to Jesus just like this woman, we too will receive great mercy from Jesus. Folks, it doesn't matter what your background is. You could be just like this woman. You could be a Canaan, a paganite. You could have done all kinds of terrible things in your background in history. But if you come to God with the same attitude this woman had, humility, on your knees, begging for his mercy, he will give it. The other side is the story. Some of us are like Pharisees. Some of us are like Sadducees. We're trusting in our background. And we're not on our knees begging for his mercy, begging for his grace, begging for his forgiveness. And because of that, we won't receive it. Folks, I would just commend to you that this woman sets a wonderful example of having all the wrong background, but completely the right attitude when it comes to Jesus. I don't care who you are or what you've done or where you come from. But if you approach, at it, you approach Jesus like this woman in humility, begging for his mercy and grace, my friends, you will find it. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for this, the example of this woman. A woman that, for the disciples, that is, even though she was begging on her knees for mercy, all they could see was her background, so they completely wrote her off. 
I thank you, Jesus, that you look way beyond our backgrounds. You look beyond the dirtiness of our history. And you can see the attitude of our heart. And you know that is what matters. That we would be seeking grace and mercy from you on our knees. And then when we are there, on our knees, looking to you for forgiveness we don't deserve, that we will find it from you. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.